Let us come to God in prayer. Let us pray. May the words of my mouth and the meditation of all our hearts be acceptable, be honoring, be pleasing in your sight, O Lord, our strength and our Redeemer. Amen. This is the last week of our sermon series about the Kingdom of God, which we began back in late August. At that point, I introduced the series by asking whether the Kingdom of God was of much importance to us, because often we do not talk about it, or even use the words or phrase the Kingdom of God. In particular, I highlighted the need to make decisions with a kingdom of God mentality, that a kingdom focus might help any discussion or decisions we may need to make about the best way forward in the future, even if it doesn't suit everyone. And at that time I was talking about the summer services, but isn't it interesting that on the final week of our series we get the news about the future presbytery plans and the realities we may have to work with. I'm going to come back to that, to that insert later in the service, so please uh, don't lose it, but try not to dwell on it for the whole sermon either. Just pin it as a wee thought there. When I introduced the series, I, I also uh, said that not only did I hope it would sharpen our kingdom focus, but that we might see that in the scriptures, the kingdom of God is a binding theme throughout, from beginning to end, with each part making a distinctive contribution. And so from Genesis, through the history of Israel with Abraham, Moses, David and the prophets, and then into the New Testament with the coming of Jesus, and then the age of the Spirit and the work of the church. And last week we reminded ourselves that the kingdom is still growing. Jesus is still extending his kingdom by the Spirit of God through the church. And that period runs through much of the New Testament, from Acts to the book of Jude. And so on our journey through the scriptures, we come at last to the final book, the book of Revelation. Most likely it was written by the Apostle John, for his name is used a number of times. And we're told in the first chapter that it was written while on the island of Patmos, where John was likely imprisoned. We cannot be exactly sure when John wrote the book, but the content suggests a time of great trial, a time of persecution even. Its style is of apocalyptic literature, which uses symbolism to convey its message. And we often today more think of apocalyptic, meaning destruction or disaster. But actually, apocalypse in the original Greek meant more revelation or unveiling. And so in the book of Revelation, we find God giving John a series of visions which, in which the Lord unveils what is going on behind the scenes of human history. And these visions God gives to strengthen believers in their trials, particularly trials of suffering and persecution. One word of caution with interpreting this book is that it's not really written as an exact timeline, even though we would love for it to be that way because we humans like to know what's happening and gain a greater sense of control. But Revelation really more invites us to lift our eyes to Jesus, 
to his kingdom, both present and future, and in so do doing find peace and hope, even amidst times of uncertainty. I obviously don't have the time to go through the whole of the book, as you'll be glad to hear, but the portion we read today summarizes much at the heart of the book. And like with other weeks, we'll take our familiar headings of God's people, God's place, God's rule, and God's blessing, and see what Revelation says about these. Because much of what we read speaks about a future place, that's where we're going to begin this morning, with God's place. The vision, the vision in chapter 21 begins with John seeing a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and there was no longer any sea. I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride beautifully dressed for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Look, God's dwelling place is now among the people, and he will dwell with them. God's place, quite clearly, is among the people in a new and fuller way. And we are given pictures here to try and help us grasp something of what this means for God's people. In verse 1, we are told that John sees a new heaven and a new earth which echoes the prophecies of Isaiah, where God said he would make a new heaven and a new earth. And so what we see here in Revelation is an affirmation that those promises will be fulfilled. In this new heaven and new earth, there are echoes of the Garden of Eden, for we read, Then the angel showed me the river of the water of life as clear as crystal. On each side of the river stood the tree of life. The deliberate incorporation of features from Genesis 2 highlights that Eden will be restored. That, once, that what was once but has now been lost will be regained. But this future place is, is not only a new heaven and a new earth, a restoration of the Garden of Eden. It is also described as the holy city, the new Jerusalem. Yet it is no ordinary city. For it is on a scale that boggles the mind and needs no other source of light. And both these features point to something special about this city. We're told this about it. It was laid out like a square as long as it was wide. He, that is the angel, measured the city with the rod and found it to be 12,000 stadia in length. That is 1,400 miles. And as wide as and high as it is long. So the new Jerusalem is a perfect cube with its height maybe being the most dramatic feature since the top of Mount Everest by comparison is a mere five and a half miles above sea level. But by being a cube the new Jerusalem echoes another special place that we've touched on through this series. It echoes the shape of the most holy place in the first temple, the temple built by King Solomon. And that was the place where God's presence was focused. It was quite small comparatively, and only one person once a year could enter. But here, in the New Jerusalem, the whole city is the most holy place. 
And the point we're meant to see is that there will be no special place where God's presence is concentrated. For God will be everywhere. Indeed, as we read, God's dwelling place is now among the people. And he will dwell with them. We won't have to go to some holy building to meet with God. The whole of the new creation is his place. And so we read in verse 22, I did not see a temple in the city. Because the Lord God Almighty and the Lamb are the temple. There'll be no distance between God and himself and his people anymore. They shall know him perfectly. And in his light they will live. And so the city neither needs sun nor moon. For the glory of God gives it light. But that leads us to ask, who lives in this new creation, this new Jerusalem? Well, Revelation says that all the nations, the people of all nations will come. Indeed, in an earlier vision in chapter 7, John said that there before me was a great multitude that no one could count from every nation, tribe, people, and language standing before the throne and before the Lamb. Earlier in the same chapter, John says the number is 144,000, but it's not to be taken as a literal number. Whereas verse 9 simply says, it's a great multitude. It's supposed to show how vast and numerous will be this people. A number beyond reckoning. Full of people from all ages and countries, from all cultures and races. A perfect community. But a community united in worship of Jesus. And it is Jesus who truly takes center stage here. And throughout the book of Revelation. A number of times we read of the throne and of the throne of God and of the Lamb. The Lamb being Jesus, the one who was slain, the one who was given a sacrifice for our sins. He sits on the throne. And so Jesus rules perfectly and all submit to his rule, giving him full worship. And the outworking of that is that God's people will know the fullness of God's blessing. For we read today, he will wipe every tear from their eyes and there will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain for the old order of things has passed away. The cycle of life followed by death will be broken. There will be none of the things that spoil life currently here on earth, which is good. Because our future will be a physical one. What's more, we read later in the chapter, no longer will there be any curse. That curse which began in Genesis 3, which was God's judgment on human sin, is removed completely. We will return to knowing life eternal with none of the hardship or pain that we yearn to be free of now. What we have here in Revelation is the perfected kingdom of God. A picture of what will be. A picture of hope to give strength and perspective in the present time. But I don't know about you, it may raise that question for me certainly. When? When will we get to enjoy this perfected kingdom? And the answer to that depends on a number of factors. If we die before the new creation comes, then the Westminster Confession, which is the subordinate standard for the Church of Scotland, which 
details much of what we do still hold to, summarizes this, it this way. The souls of the righteous, being then made perfect in holiness, are received into the highest heavens, where they behold the face of God in light and glory, waiting for the full redemption of their bodies. It picks up on a number of phrases and ideas we find elsewhere in Scripture, obviously. Uh, particularly in, maybe in Jesus' words, I go and prepare a place for you. I will come back and take you to be with me that you also may be where I am. Or to his uh, fellow person on the cross who was crucified along with him, Jesus said, truly I tell you, today you will be with me in paradise. Or in the words of the Apostle Paul, I would prefer to be away from the body and at home with the Lord. What it means to be at home with the Lord, what it means to be in paradise currently, is not really revealed to us. But at our annual bereavement service in May this year, I read a portion of a book written by one pastor, a British pastor, to, uh, which records a conversation he had with his own father a pastor as well, and I'd like to read that again for us just now. A few years ago, a few years before my father died, he asked to see me. I went into his study and we sat together. He was not well at all and his thoughts were much concerned with dying and death. I remember so vividly the questions he asked me. Son, is there time as we know it in heaven? I remember replying that I doubted it. It seemed to me then, and it seems to me now, that heaven is a dimension beyond space and time. Therefore, the measurement of time with which we are concerned does not concern those in the heavenly realms. This provoked a second question. If there is no time in heaven, there must be no consciousness of time passing. And that means there can be no sense of waiting for something future to come to pass. I remember replying that this seemed logical, though heaven's mysteries may not be unlocked by the key of logic alone. Then dad asked me his final question. If there is no time in heaven, and there is not consciousness of waiting, won't that mean that when I die, I won't have to wait for you in heaven, even though you are still living here on earth? That was some question. A little food for thought. But as the Westminster Confession said, we may be in glory, yet we are still not in the full new creation. For that new creation, our new home with new bodies, will not be realized until Jesus returns. We are told repeatedly in Scripture that we live in the last days, the days between the first coming of Jesus and His return. And we've been waiting 2,000 years for the return of Jesus. But the delay will not go on forever. The Scriptures affirm that this world will, is heading for a conclusion and that just as God fulfilled His promises in the first coming of Jesus, so He will fulfill His promise about the return of Jesus. The Apostle Peter predicted that skeptics would arise 
and wonder whether Jesus will ever return, as well as in our day wondering such things too. And so Peter writes to his fellow Christians about such matters, saying, in the last days scoffers will come, scoffing and following their own evil desires. They will say, where is this coming, he's promised? Ever since our ancestors died, everything goes on as it has since the beginning of creation. And so Peter goes on in a few later verses to give a message of encouragement, saying, do not forget this one thing, dear friends. With the Lord, a day is like a thousand years, and a thousand years are like a day. The Lord is not slow in keeping his promise, as some understand slowness. Instead, he is patient with you, not wanting anyone to perish, but everyone to come to repentance. Two thousand years is nothing from God's perspective. And he is deliberately delaying the return of Jesus so that as many as possible find salvation in Jesus. For not everyone gets into heaven. Our reading today affirmed that. Nothing impure will ever enter it, that is the New Jerusalem, nor will anyone who does what is shameful or deceitful, but only those whose names are written in the Lamb's book of life. Only those whose names are written in the Lamb's book of life. It's a stark reminder. Only those whom Jesus knows, only those who have relationship with Him are allowed to enter the new creation, the new Jerusalem. And in our day, we don't really like the sound of that. We want the good bit, the new creation, but we'd rather leave to the side the bit about a final judgment and that some, indeed maybe many, may not enter God's new creation. We wonder, can't we have one and just leave the other? Well, the Scriptures just don't allow us that conclusion. You would have to gloss over or rip out so much of what is there to do away with the claim that there will be a separation. And what is more, do you really want a God who overlooks impurity, who overlooks sin? When it comes to terrible acts of evil, we say, of course not. Don't want God to overlook that. We all want that to be judged. But when it comes to ourselves, to those we love, we maybe want a different set of rules. We want a religion or a God of our own liking. But we all know we're a mixed bag. None of us is perfect. There's all in, in all of us a little bit of impurity. Some good, something good, and something less than good. And as the verse says, nothing impure, nothing less than perfection can enter the new Jerusalem. And so God must exclude it. But it does not make him, make him lacking in love. I wonder if you can track my logic in this, and apologies if it doesn't. But Paul says in Corinthians that love does not rejoice in evil. And I'm not saying that we're all evil. But if we're anything less than perfection, 
less than good, then there's a little bit of something else in us. And so it's really because God is perfectly loving and so perfectly holy that he must judge and bar anything impure from entrance to the new creation. We don't like it. It makes us rather uncomfortable. But to some degree, neither does God. He disliked it enough to come in the person of his son and give his life to show his love in our place, to face our judgment, our eternal separation and exclusion from the new creation so that we would never have to face that reality. And so we could be sure of having our name written in the book of life if only we trust in the Lamb who was slain, the Lord Jesus. Friends, one day the perfected kingdom will come when Jesus returns. And on that day there will be a judgment, a separating of all peoples. Are we sure that our names are written in the book of life? Have we placed our trust in the salvation offered to us in Jesus? Have we recognized him as our king and bent the knee to him? For that is the mark of all who will be with him, so powerfully demonstrated time and time again in the book of Revelation. And when we bend that knee, brothers and sisters, all fear goes. Peace and joy can come Hope of that new creation, of that new home, wells up within us. And we have reassurance of our place in that perfected kingdom of the Lord Jesus. If that is our destiny, if that is the destiny to which God has called us, to belong to the perfected kingdom of Jesus, then it should begin to make an impact on us now. And we should live accordingly now. And that's partly why the vision was given to John and John wrote it down to encourage his fellow Christians to help them stay the course and orientate themselves amidst a time of great trial and uncertainty. Our days, our time may not be as terrible. We're not being jailed and killed for our faith quite yet here. But I'd be surprised if, if you had the time or you tuned out of the sermon and read this for a couple of minutes, I'd be surprised if reading this update about the presbytery plan, you were not taken back, aback a little. For the Braised churches are being asked to consider what ministry and life as a group of churches might look like if and most likely when the number of ministers is reduced from four to only Two. And Brighton's will be affected by this at some point. We won't forever be able to be on our own and have one minister to one congregation. And so we need to engage in the conversation and work with our brothers and sisters from the Braze area to imagine and to dream what church might be like and what opportunities, yes, you heard me right, opportunities might arise with fewer numbers of ministers. I'm not saying I like it, because if anything, it's probably going to increase my workload at points, and it's already busy, even if I have a holiday next week. 
and it's only four weeks or five weeks since the last one, it, it's also going to take me away from things I would rather do. It's going to change what ministry looks like for me and for you. It's likely going to mean I have less time among you and less time to journey with you. Our challenges are not like that of the first century Christians. But Revelation, I think, is just as helpful because it helps us stay the course and reorientates us to what is truly important and maybe what is upon the heart of God. Revelation reminds us of the fundamentals of Jesus, the kingdom and salvation. As such, it also challenges to hold lightly to more temporal things, to the ways we have liked things, to the ways things have been, but which will one day too pass away. I wonder, as we go into uncharted territory as a congregation, can we be a people who make decisions and have conversations with a kingdom of God mentality and heart? I think we'll only be able to do so if we know that our names are written in the book of life and as such that our true home is with Jesus and in his perfected kingdom. I pray that we may be such a people. Amen.